everybody. Welcome to Happy Healthy You, the podcast. I'm Connie Bowman, and I'm here today with Todd Henry. He's the founder of Accidental Creative, and he helps people and organizations generate brilliant ideas. Right, Todd? He's the author of The Accidental Creative. He runs a business podcast of the same name. He's a sought-after speaker, consultant, and coach. And you can find him on ToddHenry.com. And we're here today to talk about his upcoming book, Die Empty. Congratulations, Todd. Thanks, Connie. Appreciate that. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me. Yes, I'm excited. I read your book, your galley. It was, it's exciting to read a book before it actually comes out. But um, in a couple of weeks, it will be out. And it's very intriguing, the idea of dying empty. You want to explain what that means to us? Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely a title that inspires visions of lollipops and rainbows, right? And <laughs> yeah. the word die and empty in the same title. But um, yeah, so you know, several years ago, I was in a meeting and, and a friend of mine was leading the meeting. And out of the blue, he asked a question. He said, what do you think is the most valuable land in the world? And, you know, of course, we're all thinking that's a weird question. It was our first response. But then we said, OK, we'll, we'll, we'll play along. So we started throwing out answers like, the, oh, the diamond mines of South, of South Africa, right? Or the oil fields of the Middle East. And we're throwing out all these answers. And he said, no, you're all wrong. You're all wrong. I believe the most valuable land in the world is the graveyard because in the graveyard are buried all of the unlaunched businesses, all of the unreconciled relationships, all of the unexecuted ideas, the unwritten novels, all of these things that people said, I'll get around to that tomorrow. I'll start doing that tomorrow. And one day their tomorrows ran out right. and they took their best work to their grave with them. And so all of that value is buried with them. And that day I went back to my office and I wrote two words on an index card. I put them on the wall of my office. I put them in my notebook. And those two words were die empty mm-hmm. because I wanted to know um, from that day forward that every single night when I lay my head down, I can lay it down with the satisfaction of how I did my work that day and not feel like I had regrets about where I put my, my focus, my assets, my time, my energy. But instead that I could say I am pouring myself into my work uh, in a way that is meaningful and valuable on a daily basis. And when I use that word work, by the way, Connie, I don't just mean your job. I mean any place in your life you add value. So that counts, you know, relationships, uh, families, uh, the way you treat the barista at Starbucks, right? All of those things are part of your work because they're part of where you add value in the world. Yes, I love this. And what I really loved about your book is, you know, there's so many books that are just uh, a little bit more airy-fairy, shall we say. And I love that you give such practical, usable advice. And one of the first things I came upon that I enjoyed was mapping, making, and meshing. And you say, if we do all these effectively, we can be a developer as opposed to a dreamer or a drifter. Can you talk about that for a sec? Sure. Yeah. So, so mapping, those are the three kinds of work that we do. And we do these instinctually. We're not often not aware that we're doing them. We shift from mode to mode, but there are really, and, and also just to be clear, they're, they're not, there aren't these three clear, discrete containers. It's not like they're in hermetically sealed vaults separate okay. from one another. Um, they, there's, there's some blending at the edges, but we can fundamentally kind of separate our work into three categories. Mapping, which is planning. It's the work before the work. So it's strategizing. It's it's uh, determining what your steps are going to be when you actually engage in the work. Then there's making, which is actually doing the work. It's whatever kind of value you create on a daily basis. And then there's a third kind of work that we often don't think of, which is meshing. And meshing is all of the work between the work. It's what we do to develop ourselves, develop our skill set, figure out our through line, determine what we're about and why our work matters, um, pursuing our curiosity. All of these kinds of things are, are part of that meshing category. And all of us, to some degree or another, are drawn to certain elements of these three kinds of work. So, for example, 
um, if, if I make and I map. So I'm really good at planning. I'm really good at doing, but I don't mesh. I'm not really developing my skill set. I'm not right. pursuing my curiosity. I'm not doing all of these things that, that um, increase my value in the marketplace. Um, I call that a driver. A driver is somebody who's very good at planning and very good at doing, but they're not doing all the little things that continue to prepare them for tomorrow's work. And when this happens, they begin to experience decreasing return on their efforts over time because they're not developing the skills they're going to need tomorrow to face to face future uh, future work. And that's not going to work, obviously, over the long term. And then, of course, you could be very good at uh, making and you're very good at meshing. So you're good at doing the things that you need to do and you're good at meshing, uh, meaning that you're developing your skill set. But you're not good at mapping. You're not planning very well. And I call this the dream, uh, the drifter. The drifter is a person who bounces from project to project leaves a lot of half-finished projects in their wake, um, but they're not really good at understanding how they fit into a strategic plan. And obviously that's not gonna result in a brilliant body of work either if you're never really fully finishing and engaging within the context of some kind of strategic plan. And then the final combination of the, that's the least desirable of the combinations is uh, you could be very good at mapping, which is figuring out your strategic plan. You can be very good at meshing, which is developing yourself, but you don't really ever get around to doing the work itself. Right. You're not very good at making. You're not disciplined about that. And I call that person the dreamer. And we all know those people who have lots of big ideas, but they're just not very good at actually getting the work done. Um, and then the final combination, the final profile is the most desirable, which is when you map, you make, and you mesh. And when you do all three of those things simultaneously, I call that the developer because the developer is constantly positioning themselves to be in a place where they can leverage opportunities because they're developing their skill set, pursuing their curiosity. They've defined a through line and they're strategically planning and they're disciplined about actually doing their work on a daily basis. Yeah, we all want to be developers, but <laughs> on some days I'm a dreamer, some days I'm a drifter. Well, but... and that's the key. I mean, we <laughs> yeah. all get pulled yeah. to one profile or another, right? right. From, from time to time. I mean, I definitely tend toward the drifter. There's no question about it that I'm I'm really good at engaging in short bursts of activity around the project, but I leave a lot of unfinished ideas in my way because I'm always moving on to the next thing. And over time, that can have a detrimental effect yeah. if I don't recognize it and pull myself back right. and say, wait a minute, how does this fit into the overall objective I'm trying to accomplish with my life and my work? Well, we're creative, so you know, there's always that tendency, I think. You talk about what happens when we reach a certain point in life when things might be going really well and we kind of face the fear of choosing poorly. I mean, I see that in my kids, you know, they're so afraid to make a decision because there's so many choices out there and things, you know, things are going pretty well for them. Can you talk about that? Like you call it satisficing? Yeah, satisficing is a term that was popularized by a guy named Herbert Simon, who was a researcher back in the mid-1950s, brilliant guy. And uh, it's a combination of the words satisfaction or satisfy and sufficing. It's when you get to a point where you say, okay, I'm close enough. I'm going to settle in now. You know, I've put, I've put in enough effort, enough work, and I'm just going to settle in now and enjoy the ride. I'm going to coast. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people end up in a place where they say, okay, you know what? I've worked really hard, so I'm going to begin to enjoy the fruits of my labor. I'm going to, you know, put on the proverbial golden handcuffs and kind of ride it out right off into the sunset. And, um, you know, other people succumb to the lull of comfort where they say, okay, I'm just going to stay close to the middle. I'm going to do work that is um, really close to my comfort zone. That's you know, that, that I'm, I've have a proven track record um, accomplishing great things in these areas. And I'm just going to kind of stay close to close to the middle and not really take any strategic risks. And unfortunately over time, what happens is that we, that, that affects everything else in our life. You can't say I'm going to settle in in one area and not have it affect every area of your life. 
Um, and so, I, you know, I believe very firmly, Connie, that the love of comfort is often the enemy of greatness in mm. our life. You cannot pursue great work and comfort simultaneously as objectives. Now, you might experience comfort as a byproduct of your work. I mean, you know, you make money or you can afford a certain lifestyle or you um, have comfort in your relationships because you've built into them. There's nothing wrong with experiencing comfort. That's totally fine as a byproduct, but it cannot be your objective if you want to sustain great work right. because at some point you will have to choose between doing great work and being comfortable. And those who build a brilliant body of work are people who over time choose to do the right thing even when it's the uncomfortable thing. Yeah, we got to keep shaking it up, don't we? Don't Absolutely, we? no yeah. question. Yeah, I love, there's so many little nuggets of brilliance in this book. I love that you say, um, there's little personal gratification in unintentional success. Oh my gosh, as an actress, when I get a job without having to audition, it's like, it can't, this can't be worth anything, you know? What, I didn't have to work for it. That is so true. And as, as a parent, isn't it true? I mean, that if our kids don't have to struggle a little bit, they don't really achieve any kind of sense of personal gratification. Well, it is so. totally true. And I, I think part of the struggle, you know, the struggle of work is what provides it with meaning. The the uh, the ups and the downs are what provide the context and the texture for our life. And, you know, if everything is an up all the time, then we don't really appreciate it. If everything's a down all the time, then we don't really have any hope. And so it's, you know, the struggle of work itself is what helps provide meaning and context for life and, and provides us with a sense of purpose and um, the value of sense of the value that we're adding to the world. So, it, you know, unintentional success, while, you know, I'll certainly take unintentional success over massive failure any right. day, um, but it, it's not as gratifying as when you're working a strategic plan plan, you put the effort in, and then you see success on the other side of it, because you can point to something and say, this is the value that I created. Yeah. And in a, in a world where most of us are in, you know, figure it out kinds of jobs, where we're making it up as we go, uh, the, the challenge increasingly for all of us is to better define our work, better define our objectives, and better define the course of action we need to take in order to deliver the value that we're required to, to deliver every day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so simple, but I, I had just never thought about it in the way you articulated it. it made so much sense to me. You also say boredom isn't always bad and that the cure for it is intentional and applied curiosity. Can you talk about how we can intentionally and how we can apply, how, how we can go for that, you know, curiosity how do we how do we like garner that in in our life yeah i think i think there's a you know you've probably heard the phrase only boring people get bored um, yeah, I, right. I think it's wrong i think bore, boredom is actually an indication sometimes that you're positioned for a breakthrough, that you're poised for a breakthrough in your life and in your work oh. um, be because your mind is signaling to you, okay, time to move on, time to jump the rails. Now, the problem is that some people fill that boredom with, um, you know, hurling birds at pigs on their phone, you know, <laughs> playing angry birds or something like that, instead of applying their curiosity to, to leverage their gray matter for something more, more productive. Um, so, I mean, a couple of strategies in the book that I recommended, one is to find your sacred space, right? To find, mm. find what Joseph Campbell calls your bliss station, Love this him. place where you can, uh, you can kind of be and you can think and you can process things and you can read and you can, um, do whatever you need to do to develop your mind, follow your curiosity without the judgmental eyes of others upon you. So, um, that's definitely one strategy that's been incredibly effective in my life. And I've seen it as, uh, to, to great effect in companies as well, companies that encourage 
people to have space in their life for thinking, for studying, for experimenting and playing, um, you know, it, it tends to really um, help them engage more fully in their work. And another strategy, um, I stumbled upon the story of um, uh, Roseanne Cash, you know, the daughter of the legendary country singer Johnny Cash. And there was a story of when she was younger and um, her father was kind of quizzing her a little bit about country music. And he discovered that she had a really, really poor grasp of the history of country music. And of course, being Johnny Cash, he was kind of aghast. And so he took a piece of paper and he wrote down the names of uh, a bunch of songs on the, on the piece of paper and he handed it to her and he said, this is your education, go learn these songs. Right. And she said that was really kind of the beginning of her rootedness as an artist was becoming firmly immersed in the history and the, the texture of country music. And, you know, I think any of us, regardless of our field, we can figure out what is that list for me? What would that list of say 20 things be in my industry that anybody who does what I do has to be intimately aware of and knowledgeable of um, and, and, and know inside and out and then go and learn that list, whatever it is, as a means of pursuing your curiosity and developing your, your mind. Mm, very good. Uh, I love that you brought up Joseph Campbell, who, who coined the phrase, follow your bliss. But what your take on that is follow your bliss means what do I have to offer others? And that's really what gives us meaning and keeps us going, don't you think? It is, absolutely. Well, I think we misuse, misuse this word passion a lot. And we yes. tell people, follow your passion, everything's going to be okay. Well, um, follow your passion doesn't mean just go and do whatever fills you with a temporary sense of ecstasy when you engage in it. I think we, you know, I'm passionate about ice cream and I'm passionate about my wife and I'm passionate about writing. I mean, those three things don't go together, right? I feel differently toward you know, ice cream. I mean, I might like ice cream, but when it, when push comes to shove, I'm not going to throw my life down, my, my life down in the middle of a road for a, you know an ice cream cone. Like I might for my family. Right. right. Um, so, you know, I think when we use the word passion, we have to find its rootedness and its original meaning. The root word of passion is to suffer. So when we, when we talk about following your passion, I like to phrase that as find the work that you're willing to suffer for. What is the work that keeps you a little later at your desk? What is the work that keeps you a little more intensely engaged than the other work? Um, what is it that causes you to lose yourself in your work? And then find ways of working yourself into positions where you're doing more and more and more of that. That doesn't mean that you will only do things that you like. Of course not. There are parts of my job, Connie, that I really don't like. And I probably have about as flexible of a job as possible. Um, I am a writer of books who doesn't really like to write all that much. I'll be completely frank. That's mm -hmm. not one of my favorite things in the world. But I know that writing is probably the best way for me to deliver the value, the equity that I want to deliver to the world. So I, I buck it up and I write on those days. And, and uh, you know what? I, I, that's what I do. I sell books to publishers and I write them. So, uh, but it, I don't love it. It doesn't fill me with ecstasy. Now, I love having done it. I love getting through it. I love pushing through it. But it's because I'm passionate about the work itself. I'm passionate about changing minds, about helping people realign themselves around what matters to them, um, come up with better ideas. That's what I'm passionate about. So that's the work I'm willing to suffer for. And in my case, sometimes suffering means sitting down and writing 1,500 words. But um, I think we all have to ask that question, what work am I willing to suffer for? 
Yeah, that balance of discipline and creativity is is <laughs> is a big stumbling block for a lot of us, I think. But it is, but they're, but they're two sides of the same coin. I mean, Orson Welles said the absence of limitation is the enemy of art. We tend to think that creativity means roam free on the plains. It's it's not that at all. You need some limitation because you have finite focus, you have finite energy, you have finite time. You only have so much you can put against your work. So you have to have boundaries. You need to have limited scope of vision so that you can focus on the places where you can really add the most value. Creatives that say, just give me wide open planes, don't fence me in. Um, th those kinds of people, in my experience, tend to burn out. They yeah. tend to burn out on the plane because they don't have banks, but a river with banks flows deep. And that's what we want to become, our, our people who flow deep, who produce brilliant work over the course of time because we have some firm boundaries in our life that we can establish to keep us focused. Now, those boundaries can change, of course, over time, and they should change. Our disciplines should change over time as our circumstances change, but we have to have some sense of boundary in our life if we want to focus our work effectively. Mm. I love the suggestion that you give to set up. I'm not, I'm not going to give away all the great suggestions, but one of them that I'm definitely going to put, put to use in my life is set an alarm every day to go off at a certain time where we ask ourselves if we are aligned with, yeah. with our mission, with our passion, with what, whether we're, we're staying on the path, right? Yeah, that was a, that was a, a Peter Bregman um, suggestion in his book, 18 Minutes. And in an interview with him, he said that every hour on the hour, his watch beeps. And when his watch beeps, it reminds him to stop and ask himself, am I being who I want to be right now? Um, and he found that uh, over, over the course of time, no matter what he did at the beginning of the day or the end of the day, he would pretty frequently drift off course during the day. So he had to set an hourly reminder to ask himself, am I being who I want to be right now? And I think that, I mean, honestly, I think that's one of the most brilliant little easy no-brainer innovations that I've heard in a long time to help you stay focused. Because when that thing goes off and you find yourself, you know, in the middle of an argument with uh, your children or with a coworker or, and you're not being the kind of person that you want to be, suddenly you're called to task by your own, you know, your own, uh, right. your own systems, I guess. So right. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. It's a brilliant idea. Yeah. And you talked about this, a lot of different things that get in the way of our success. And one of them was shadow pursuits. And that hit home with me because uh, mm -hmm. I'm an actress and for, I worked in PR and advertising early on. And it, I, all, I was always writing the copy, designing ads, but, it, but then I'd, I'd have to go into the studio and perform them and I'd end up in the commercials. Or I, I always went back to performing. So for me, those, those were shadow pursuits. And I, I, once I got back to what I really wanted to do, I was so much happier. So Yeah, that's, that's a, uh, again, it's a um, uh, uh, Julia Cameron um, tag that she used. She called uh, people shadow artists mm -hmm. who they, they engage in activities or professions that are very close to the ones that they really want to do, but are just far enough away that they can kind of keep a safe distance. But but it's within sight of them. Yeah. And so she said, you know, people who want to write become book editors or people who, you know, want to act become talent representatives. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, her point is that it's, it's kind of, I mean, there's nothing wrong with any of those professions, right? right. I, mean, it's, right. I don't mean sure. to imply that. And I'm sure she didn't mean right. to imply that either. But I think it's easy for us to default to those things and say, well, again, it's satisfying. It's, well, it's, I'm close enough. I'm, at least I'm in the industry. At least I'm close to you know, the place I want to be. And um, yeah, so I think that we all have to ask the question, where am I kind of settling in here instead of pursuing the thing that I really should be pursuing?
Yeah, it's interesting because I kind of danced around the uh, acting field for a while and my daughter just went for it and she's, she's been on Broadway and she's just going for it. So I guess she recognized that in me and said, I'm not going to do that. So, well, I think cool. that's great. And, and, you know, sometimes it's a multi-generational thing. I mean, I hope that my children strive to succeed in ways that I have massively failed, you know? So I, I think that sometimes um, that's the best legacy we can leave is the legacy that we build into our children. And we help them, you know, I guess, learn from what we've done. And hopefully our, our aspirations for them is that they will reach beyond where we were. And, and I hope, you know, as um, in, in all the ways that I have failed, I hope that my children can learn from my failure um, in that way on, in my life specifically and, and hopefully not, not walk down the same path. Right, right. I, I loved, since you bring up your, your kids, I, um, I love the little example you gave of Ava sitting in her little closet typing on her, her computer <laughs> and you said, what, what is it you're writing about? And she says, I'm waiting to hear. Hey, yeah, yeah. I think so, she's so, more tapped in than you than you realize. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she. Um, th- this is th- this was a really funny thing. This happened for I think probably about three months straight every day. And she would come in and she would say, "Good morning, Daddy." I would be in my home office, um, and she would go down to the basement. And she was she was going to work. I'm using air quotes. You can't see me. I'm using right. air quotes right now. And um, so her, her office was a closet in our basement and she would um, just be typing away down there on her little Barbie computer and her <laughs> that doesn't even do anything, right? She'd just be typing away. And so one day I thought, well, I'm going to get down there and see what's going on. So I went down and I said, Ava, what are you working on? She said, well, I'm, uh, I'm uh, well, they haven't told me yet, right? Uh, they haven't told me yet what I'm supposed to be working on. And I just started thinking, well, how many people go to work every day? And of course, they're typing on a real computer or they're doing real activities, but they're waiting for somebody to tell them what to do with their life. They're waiting for somebody else to tell them how they should engage or what they should be up, what they should be about or what they should stand for. And uh, I thought, wow, that's it starts pretty early. You know, this waiting for permission thing starts pretty early in life. Right. And and I think that brings us to the importance of connecting with others, but also with our our own spiritual selves. Oh, absolutely! And we have to stay connected with others. I mean, we need we're we're not wired to be alone. And brilliant work is the result of groups of people collectively grasping for the next. That's what that's where brilliant work comes from. So, um, if you really want to make sure that you're not leaving your best work inside of you, you have to stay connected to other people because others call out of us our best work. All right. So what's the big payoff of dying empty? I mean, at the end of our lives, we're going to die. <laughs> we are. What's the payoff? The payoff is that you don't go to your grave with regret, you know, and uh, so many people late in life, Connie, they end up in a place where they regret that they didn't take small little strategic choices, uh, d- decisions, um, paths. They, they ignore their intuition. They chose the safe route over the route that they thought deep down might be the best route. Um, they neglected relationships because it was difficult to do the right thing. And so late in life, they end up regretting all of these things they didn't do. My, my wife and I have made a decision in life and in business that we're going to regret the things we do, not the things we don't do. That's kind of become our operating ethics. So mm. we, you know, if we think that we should do something, we're going to go do it. And we may fail massively, but we're going to choose to do that and maybe regret that decision later than live with the regret of 
never having tried things, never having executed the things that deep in our bones we know that we should be doing. And so I think that the, the real payoff to structuring your life purposefully and engaging each day with meaning, with purpose, and with discipline in how you approach your days is that you can, on a daily basis, lay your head down satisfied with the work that you did. You don't, none of us get to do everything we, we want. I hope that I have more aspirations, more hopes, more dreams. I hope that I get better and better and better as I age. And I hope that the day I die, I have more unexecuted ideas in my head than at any point in my life because I, I want to continue to aspire um, and, and have ambition my entire life. But I do want to lay my head down for the last time knowing that I have done everything in my power to engage my work and to add value with everything that I have. And if I can do that, I will consider that a successful life. So dying empty means dying empty of regret, but full of satisfaction for a life well lived. Ah. Me too. I'm so inspired talking to you. Thank you, Todd Henry. <laughs> I'm going to look great. for your book this the end of the month in September. And for more information about Todd, you can go to his website, right? Yeah, Todd. ToddHenry.com is the best place to go. And thank you so much. I, I can't you, wait Todd. to hold this book in my hand, the actual book. And read it again. Great. Thank you so much. Great. Take care.